What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, the smartest guy I have probably ever met in my life, my good friend, Dr. John Russin. He is literally the most intelligent strength coach I have uh, ever known. He's probably one of the top guys in the industry who is known for being the smartest when it comes to hypertrophy, strength, movement, you name it, he is the guy, and I'm super pumped to have him here. I know a lot of people have been requesting him to come on the podcast, um, and if anybody is interested in changing their body composition, which is probably 99.9% of the people listening to this podcast, this is a guy that you should learn from because he is always putting out a ton of content regarding movement patterns, hypertrophy, strength, power, um, dynamic warm-up, cool-downs, like you name it. If it has anything to do with training and getting better results in your training, Dr. John Russin knows everything there is about it and he covers it. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking a lot about hypertrophy specifically, but we are going to touch on strength. We are going to touch on warm-ups. We are going to touch on cool-downs. We're going to touch on myths uh, around gyms, around training, around programming, around a lot of things. This is a really, really informative episode, Um, and even if your goal isn't to get big or build a bunch of muscle, this is still a episode you're going to want to listen to and probably take notes on because at the end of the day, if we are training for fat loss, if we are training for strength, if we are training for hypertrophy, if we are training for performance, a lot of the same principles apply. And one thing that all of us need to be aware of and really focus on is staying injury free. And that is what Dr. John Russin is known for. He is known for building muscle, building strength, improving performance while saving yourself from any nagging pain, saving yourself from injury, and just avoiding poor movement patterns in general. So he is like the pain-free guy. Now, before I rant any longer, I want to get right to the episode because this is full of training gems, and I'm really, really excited for you guys to tune into this. So without further ado, let me welcome my good friend, Dr. John Russin. John, welcome to the podcast, brother. I'm excited to have you here. Cody, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, dude. So you've been a uh, highly requested guest, so I'm, I'm really <laughs> pumped to have you. And I'm, I'm excited to just kind of – I want to break down hypertrophy and everything about it because you approach hypertrophy from a much different perspective than a lot of people, which I really love and respect. And it's and I love you and hate you at the same time. I actually just got done doing uh, – the muscle prescription. Like I literally just got back from the gym, so I'm hurting from you, but, <laughs> but I'm excited to talk to you because I want to talk about the science behind how you do what you do and just like the functional aspect of everything you do. So, um, let's just kind of get right into it. The first thing I want to start with is if you can just break down your warm up procedure, your activation priming procedure, how you go about training. Cause I see a lot of people who run in the gym and I was guilty of this run in the gym, throw 225 on the bar and just start squatting. And that doesn't lead to very good process. So Kind of break down how you approach the beginning of every training program. Well, yeah. I mean, the cornerstone of everything is going to be the dynamic warm-up or kind of like your daily maintenance if you kind of think about it like that. But it's been a polarizing thing in our industry over the last two decades because we've gone from 20 years ago, people, like you said, just going in, getting under the bar right away without a warm-up and having a pretty good amount of success with it. But somewhere along the way, uh, we got into uh, what I call rehab purgatory where we go in and it's 45 minutes later and you're still warming up and you're still doing bullshit corrective exercises and you never actually get into training. So what's the intermediary between those two points? And really a couple of years ago, it came down for me, I was wasting a lot of time personally on my warmups. 
I was getting a little bit too corrective exercise training guruism with my clients and we just had to figure out a way to streamline the process. So really what was the 20% of things that was giving 80% of the benefit and that really derived the, the six phase dynamic warm up training sequence. And that's something that we use uh, really predominantly with every type of athlete. So our power lifters, our aesthetics athletes, our general fitness clientele, and even people coming off of rehab. Um, this structure of soft tissue work being number one, number two is biphasic stretching, number three is corrective exercise, number four is going to be activation drills muscularly, number five, foundational movement pattern development, and number six, CNS priming. That lays the cornerstone of getting everything in in a very well-sequenced manner to prepare you for training, but also to kind of clean up some of those weak links from a cumulative standpoint. And that seems like a lot of shit to do, but if you can do it efficiently and you can actually get down to identifying the linchpin, what's the one thing that you can improve that will improve multiple other aspects of your human movement – if you can do that, you're going to get in within six to eight minutes if you're a pain-free mover. And even if you're beat to shit and you have chronic pain here and there and you're still training, you can still get this in within 15 minutes. So that's going to be a huge amount of time that you have to invest in training as opposed to, again, flopping around on the fucking foam roller for 45 minutes. Right. So going back to how – I mean that, that's a lot of stuff to get done in six to eight minutes. Are you working on – full body movements that break down everything from head to toe so that you can get it done efficiently like that? Or like you said, are you literally just picking one or two movements and only targeting those specific joints, muscles, whatever it may be? Well, it starts with a process called reverse engineering. You got you got to figure out what your goal is and then go backwards from there. So, you know, if you uh, have a squat emphasis day, you know, your big marquee movement is going to be some sort of squat pattern. From there, you build back up based on, you know, what you need. Everyone's going to be a little bit different in their individualized presentation. But say a common one is like, man, my hip flexors are always tight. Guess what? We're going to foam roll the hip flexors. And then we're going to do uh, positional stretching on the hip flexors. And then we're going to work the hip flexors from the opposite end and include extension. You know, things like that, trying to sequence everything together for one key goal. When you do that, all of a sudden you're not uh, doing five different foam rolling techniques throughout the whole body. Or we're not, we're not just hoping and praying that, you know, four different corrective exercises, at least one of them work. What we're doing is really streamlining the approach and trying to get in and make sure that we're seeing benefits with them. So when you go efficient, it takes a little bit more mental energy to actually program this shit out. But again, you know, if you're serious about your training, you're serious about feeling good and getting results, you should be putting as much emphasis into programming your warm-up as you do programming your big lifts. You know, human movement and function, it is what it is, no matter what modality that you're using. So if you really just wanna go deep dive in on it and leave really no stone unturned, you should have a plan from the moment you walk into the gym to the moment that you get out of the gym. And that happens with a recovery and it also happens with a warm up in addition to the actual training session itself. I love it, do I think, yeah, like structure is probably the biggest foundational key that everybody needs that's what a lot of people are missing so when we get an athlete in the gym i think it's especially high level athletes if you're working with pros it's easy to explain or to tell somebody like hey we need to do xyz this exact way they're going to follow everything you do because they're a pro athlete when you get a bodybuilder is it much harder to get them to do these kind of things for me personally uh, over the last couple of years kind of earn the reputation of uh, the guy that people gravitate towards for their programming and their uh, their general fitness maintenance when shit hits the fan. So, you know, if like shit's going well for somebody, like very seldom do they come to us. 
But that's a good thing because like really in all actuality, about 95% of people are dealing with some chronic base issue. They just kind of deal with it on their own and they try to push it under the rug until it actually flares up and uh, takes away their physical autonomy. So it keeps them from doing what they want to do. So a lot of the times, uh, especially with the bodybuilders, the physique athletes that I'm working with, they're coming to me for a reason. Either it's a recurring shoulder pain or flaring up their lower back or they just plateau to the point where uh, they know that the movement patterns themselves are the limiting factor in their hypertrophy or their ability to actually get uh, a better physique on stage. So the buy-in factor for a lot of the people that I work with is easier now, but you know, six years ago, it was a lot harder to try to explain the methodologies before people were reading articles on TNation and drjohnrussin.com about them. Right. Okay. So how do you apply this to hypertrophy? Because I, I mean, I think it's obvious that everybody listening will say, if you want to not get injured or if you want to stop getting injured, it's obvious you need to prioritize this stuff. Is there any application of this that allows people to actually build more muscle, even if they're not hurt? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the key factors in hypertrophy is actually eliciting a strong mind-muscle connection in addition to getting in biomechanically sound positions to actually enhance force output. So when you add both of those things together, if people are struggling, it's usually because they have a lagging muscle group that they can't feel working or their movement patterns are just like shitty to the level that they're actually fighting themselves. You know, the term we use is the internal parking brake on the movement patterns. And that stuff can be hugely limiting in terms of being able to maximize muscular tissue in the body. Because, you know, if you can't feel something, it's probably not going to be trained ideally. If you can't feel something, you're definitely not going to be fatiguing it to the levels that you need. And most likely in trying to fatigue to the levels of the muscular tissue that you need to actually grow, you're cranking the joints instead. So it's a vicious circle of uh, trying to get more and more and more muscle on, trying to achieve a physique, but really just blasting your joints in the process. So one of our key tenets is hammer the muscles but spare the joints. That sounds very, very simple, but it's harder when you look at an entire scope of a, a training block or a program. So how do you apply that activation process in your warm-up sequence? Because, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people – there's certain muscle groups especially. Like I know a lot of people have issues feeling their lats work, right? A lot of people have like sleepy butt syndrome. They can't get their boots <laughs> to fire. How do you – like which part of the warm-up sequence do you implement activation or that mind-muscle connection? How do you teach that to somebody? Well, really, it's a step-by-step it's a -step process. So, you know, it's, um, it's taking one step at a time. So we foam roll, we do some of the fluffier shit, but by the time we get to activation drills, all the shit that you did before in the three to four minutes that you invested it into that warm-up, it should enhance the level of the mind-muscle connection, being able to tap into some, some better internal-based muscular activation. From that point, you know, we want to transfer it into function with the big uh, six foundational movement patterns. But I think the key thing that we do a little bit differently than most coaches do is that we don't go straight into the squat rack. We don't go straight into the bench press. We use something called a power primer scheme, and it's essentially uh, a way to increase volume on a lagging tissue, usually in the posterior chain. We're thinking upper back. We're thinking lats hamstrings, glutes, calves in some cases. And we're trying to blast these things with constant tension, big flexes, high amounts of total volume, and trying to really enhance the mind-muscle connection, trying to increase joint lubrication in the, the active joints themselves, but also tissue temperature. So it's almost an extended warm-up on top that actually is your first loaded movement of the day. So this has become a staple in almost every type of training program from powerlifting to bodybuilding that we're putting together. 
So would you say because that's something? I mean, back in the day, Louis did a lot of as well on West Side, and it's yeah. something I put into a lot of my programs. That people will ask like, "Why am I doing face pulls? It's bench day," and I'm like, "Just, just <laughs> trust me and just get to it, right?" So, what is the importance behind that from a um, a, a strength perspective, and how is doing hamstring curls before I squat actually going to allow me to squat more weight or at a deeper yeah. range? Yeah, this is this is pretty crazy because um, there's not a lot of great science on this. Like you, like you alluded to, like Louis was having people fucking push the sled around and pull the sled, and all of a sudden they were getting into the squat rack and like throwing around crazy numbers on their max effort days. And then you have the other side of things, um, really marquee bodybuilding coaches like John Meadows using a primer technique to absolutely blast tissues before they get in and do compounding movements. That's more of like a pre-fatigue so they can actually get the feel of the mind-muscle connection better. But if you go halfway between what Louie and what Meadows is doing, it's kind of what we do. And we try to enhance the actual role of tissues as opposed to going into a textbook and being like, hmm, the posterior delts, you know, they horizontally abduct the shoulder and the glenohumeral joint. Like nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> what we need to know is what do these things do in the human body? What does the posterior shoulder girdle do? That shit stabilizes so we can be dynamic pressors. We can have dynamic movements happening from the dynamic phasic muscle, which is the pectoralis major. So if you think about things like that, we need to be training tissues for their role, not only their action via the textbook. So really the role of key tissues in the posterior chain, the ones that are key stabilizers are to create tension. So you have two different kinds of musculature. You have phasic muscles that are explosive. You think about the hamstrings, you think about the pecs, uh, you think about the quadriceps for to some extent. And then you have the other types of muscles. These are the ones that we're talking about for power primers. They're tonic stabilizers. Big ones for us are going to be the lats, the upper back, and the glutes. When we think about tonic stabilizers, they respond really, really well to hypertrophy and metabolic stress schemes. So increased rep ranges, increased total volumes, but also an increased time under tension. So really, we need to be matching the role of the tissues themselves with the types of schemes and methodologies that we're putting in. Uh, you know, tissue is not just a tissue. You can't train the biceps the same way as you train the quads, as you train the calves. You need to be matching them with their fiber types, one, but also more predominantly their actual role in human function. I love it, dude. So is, is this part of the reason – you've said this a bunch of times in your content and I always preach this as well – that we should probably be rowing twice as much, maybe for some people even three times as much, depending on their posture, as much as we should be pressing or just working the posterior chain versus the anterior chain. Yeah. Is is this exactly why or, or what is the role of that with anything else like posture or, or so on and so forth? Yeah, yeah. So you're speaking to uh, something we coined like the shoulder-friendly training ratios. Uh, the shoulder-friendly training ratios can really be applied to the hip complex as well. But what it breaks down to is having two to three times as much volume on the backside of the body, the posterior chain, as the anterior chain. But then to go one step further on that, you should really be doing more horizontal-based movements like rowing, like push-ups, as opposed to vertical plane motions like overhead presses or pull-ups. It has to do with the differentiation of the arthrokinematics, the way that the joints work when they're in uh, open and closed chains. It's just a little bit different uh, from a biomechanical standpoint. But if you can adhere to those things, whether it be at the lower body or at the upper body, all of a sudden your training program is so well-rounded that you don't have to spend endless amounts of time doing fluffy prehab work. 
you don't have to be doing these crazy maintenance programs that take you 30 minutes a night to get through. Your training becomes your rehab. That's the key. You know, once you bring up those weak links, your training should be maintaining, if not getting you better movement patterns, better results, optimizing uh, neurological responses, and again, mechanical responses and growing muscle tissue, that should be optimized as well. I think it's so valuable because uh, it, unfortunately in a commercial gym, I would say the horizontal row is probably the least performed exercise, which is probably <laughs> the most valuable exercise. And I mean in, in sports like CrossFit, it's almost non-existent. Yeah. Um, and if anybody needs that, it's those people, especially doing so For much sure. Olympic lifting at a high volume. Um, let's jump back to pre-fatigue real quick because uh, you brought up John Meadows who I actually really enjoy his content. I think he's one of the smarter bodybuilders out there that's really doing cool For stuff. Sure. Um, he does pre-activation, he does pre-fatigue. That's a really big thing. I know there was a study that kind of showed that it's actually not as beneficial simply because their whole concept was if I do a bunch of chest flies to get blood flow in the chest before I do a bench press or anything, I'm going to push less volume and, and volume is the key driver of hypertrophy. So what's your opinion on that and do you still believe in pre-fatiguing to an extent just to kind of get blood flow in the muscle? Yeah, so I mean, we use pre and post fatigue uh, kind of interchangeably. What the research says is that we don't really know what the fuck is going on, uh, to be absolutely honest. Uh, people have really great responses from a pre fatigue, meaning that we're actually going to use an isolative based movement. So, like you said, the example with the pec fly, you do pec flies as an isolation through horizontal ABA deduction, and then you get into a compound movement, which might be your barbell bench press. And the theory behind it is like, hey, you can feel the pecs more because we just isolated them. Yes, you might be able to, but it also might be overloading the triceps as the secondary mover a bit more. We don't really know. And then you look at post fatigue doing the bench press first and then the pec fly second. Um, again, that could be advantageous given the person in front of you. But really, we've been using them interchangeably, and it really depends on what you feel and the responses that you're getting because there's pros and cons to both. But really, if you place a large emphasis on enhancing mind-muscle connection while not pre-fatiguing to the point where you can't move uh, close to maximal weights, if you can get somewhere within the middle, both pre- and post-fatigue are going to work well in terms of like a superset or a compound set uh, type movement. Cool. So sticking in this kind of pre-training realm, one thing I really enjoy that you guys do in your programs is some kind of explosive movement to fire up the CNS before we get to lifting. And that's something I've yeah. always done. I even like doing that with um, even elderly clients because I, I believe they need to be reactive. I mean tripping and falling is one of the leading causes of death for older uh, population. So that's really huge. And, and I even do it for people who are just trying to build mass and they'll ask like, dude, I don't care about being fast. I'm not an athlete. Like I just want to build muscle. And it's like it's important. So why is being yeah. explosive prior to training so important? It's not necessarily being explosive. Um, the way that we term uh, phase six of the dynamic warm-up sequence is CNS stimulation. So we are trying to peak out the response of the central nervous system in order to have a carryover into more of our uh, compound-based movement or indicator lift of the day. So when you think about uh, trying to tap into the potential of the central nervous system, there's a phenomenon called post-activation potentiation. And basically, it states that we're going to be able to overreach because we're essentially fooling the nervous system into being stronger, more explosive, more dynamic by using certain methodologies. So you can tap into post-activation potentiation, PAP, two main mechanisms. You can 
increase the total amount of mechanical tension that would be achieved through doing something like a close to one RM uh, movement of some sort. So maximal loading for maximal mechanical tension, or you can increase neurological efficiency. And this is the one that more fits into um, the warm-up process or even in uh, more of an intermediary primer movement. And things that we think about with that are more of the, the ones that you're talking about, where we're doing jacks, we're doing jumps, we're doing twitchy-based movements, uh, plyometrics at the upper body with med ball throws, uh, plyometric-based push-ups, things like that. But all that shit that I just mentioned, all the plyometric stuff, like that's as advanced as you could possibly get. And we have a lot of people that just like aren't ready to jump yet. So if you think about trying to achieve the same PAP response, minus actually leaving the fucking ground or throwing the ball explosively, it comes down to um, being able to use isometrics, maximal internal tension tension-based isometrics. And those are um, also methods that you can use in this phase six that are more joint friendly. Uh, they can still tap into the CNS response. And it's something that for say like an elderly client or uh, some mashed up meatheads like I'm currently working with, we're not having them jump yet. You know, We're having them do like a split stance isometric and really just try to tap into full body tension, internal base tension. And it has a similar carryover. So there's many ways to tap into PAP. But really, we're trying to do it so we get that five to nine minute carryover into our big lift of the day. And any time that we can enhance performance, you know, that's something that is obviously advantageous for us moving weight in the gym, uh, performing in the gym. But also, if we can enhance performance, that will become a protective mechanism in general and trying to really have a preventative based program moving forward. Uh, uh, one of the things I love about that whole uh, – the way you program it is the max tension plank holds and just the different core drills because – I think a lot of people don't know how to – or their body doesn't know how to turn on their core when it's actually needed. Like when they're under a bar, right. when they're sprinting maximal effort, it doesn't turn on when it's actually needed on command, right? So I love those those cues, especially because a lot of people just have shitty plank form and they're low back. Yeah, and they don't man, like the two things I always hear is like, all right, you got to activate the glutes. All right, cool. Like how do you activate the fucking glutes? It's like, all right, squeeze them. If people can't squeeze their glutes, they're not going to be able to just magically squeeze their glutes. So the way that we try to fool people into doing that is trying to pre-tension the whole pillar complex, so the shoulders, the core, with the hip complex. We alter foot position, hand position, and we create muscular tension so it optimizes biomechanical positions. So we try to increase hip centration, so get the ball and socket based joint right smack dab in the middle so we can have increased muscular tension around the joint. You know, it's not just about squeezing your ass a little bit harder. It's about positioning for success from muscular tension standpoint. And the same thing is uh, I hear it all the time with the core. It's like, I need more core strength. Like anyone who's dealing with lower back pain, oh yeah, yeah, my core's weak, my hamstrings are fucking tight. It's like, yeah, all right, I've heard that before. But what we try to do is position the shoulders, position the hips. And the last thing that we're doing is actually adding a brace to the core. Because if we can position the rest of the pillar, it makes that barrier to entry of actually activating ideally that much lower so we can actually achieve something that people can enhance my muscle connection, internal tension, and then gain that skill set and actually transfer it into more meaningful compound-based movement. So if anybody listen hasn't done uh, – let's just call it a John Russell plank. Like go to his YouTube and just check out <laughs> some of the cues because it, it's literally head to toe. You're shaking. Your whole body is involved. So let's kind of roll on that, that core path. What is the yeah. some of the leading causes that you see for low back pain? I mean, that's probably one of the most common injuries, especially for, like you said, washed up meatheads. What do you find is really the big thing causing it, and what do you address first? 
I mean, anytime that you have uh, generalized lower back pain, there could be exponential amounts of different signs and symptoms and origins that lead to that presentation. But generally, people just don't move very well. And a lack of movement patterns has really stemmed from a lack of uh, pillar stability. So you think about stability as a skill. It's not about being strong. It's about sequencing a skill together. So anytime that we have sound movement patterns, it's about the three S's, sequencing, stability, and then smoothness. So if you don't have those things, which most people don't have the ability to move smoothly through compound movement patterns, then again, force finds its way into compensation patterns, and usually it ends up where we don't want it. You know, the lumbar spine or the lumbar pelvic complex in general, it's an inherently stable region of the body, meaning that it really naturally, biomechanically speaking, doesn't have a whole lot of degrees of freedom of range of motion. Yes, it flexes. Yes, it extends and has some degrees of side bending and rotation, like five to seven degrees there. But really, again, what's the role of it? The role of the core and the lumbar and pelvic complex is to create strong and stable positions to transfer force out the upper extremities, out the lower extremities, plain and simple. People get into trouble because they have poor movement patterns, but also because they have the kind of, uh, the kind of responses that force leaks into these regions and actually causes compensation. So once we have the force leak, the compensation, and then we add increased volume, increased loading, increased metabolic stress, and a lot of this is going into compensation pattern as opposed to authentic based movement. We have a cumulative stress cycle, and those are the things that really compound over time to be either acute nature, lower back pain, like the last straw that breaks the camel's back, or just something chronic that gets worse and worse over weeks, months, years. Okay, so, and I love that because a lot of times it's never what you think it is, right? If your low back's hurting, there's probably something else going on. And one thing I know we learned in school, and I wanna say Greg Cook was the guy who really popularized this term, but it was like the mobility stability continuum. And he kind of lays out like your ankles are mobile, your knees are stable, your hips are mobile. And he goes up the chain and it's kind of alternating. What he would say is like, hey, if your low back's hurting, it's most likely because your thoracic spine has no mobility or your hip has no mobility because we look below. Is that how you kind of go about looking for injuries? Yeah, I mean, I think that that viewpoint of, uh, you know, they call it the joint by joint approach from uh, from Mike Boyle and from Greg Cook. um, That's very, very smart. You know, people are always trying to fucking argue that. But the more types of injuries that you see, the more you can kind of place them into having those red flag issues. It's like, oh, your lower back hurts. Oh, well, your thoracic spine moves like shit. And guess what? You have three degrees of hip internal rotation. Like, let's bring up those red flags and see what happens as opposed to trying to like go in and deep dive on this crazy shit and really getting theoretical as opposed to actionable with it. So that's an approach that, um, you know, if you can master, you can look at it. It really breaks down regions very, very simply to the point where you can really um, get a lot of data very, very quickly if somebody, again, is presenting with red flag issues. Anytime that somebody has a red flag, that's stuff that you want to improve upon, and then you move on from there and reassess. But if you're just trying to get this tiny minor stuff and trying to improve my, only minor things, you're leaving the major things like the red flag issues uh, up to chance, and that's not something that really lines well with uh, with really long-term goals. Right, and I think it's just good because, it, like you said, it's so simple, right? Like I, there's so many people out there that overcomplicate things, or for new trainers – it's an easy way to find out why your clients have nagging injuries. And obviously when it gets to a certain extent, you need to refer out if you're not a PT or not in that realm. But 
I think it's a really easy approach. Um, one thing I do love about your programming that I wanted to touch on is ramp up sets because I know when I first did this and I remember telling you like when I very first did the first FHD, I did it wrong and I was doing – I was like, dude, you have like eight sets on everything in your program. I'm dead. Yeah. Uh, but once I learned – I talked to you and I learned how to do ramp up sets, I was like, man, I really like this. I feel really good when I'm hitting my top end set. So what is your philosophy behind ramp up sets? All right. So funny story. I'm, uh, I'm going to segue into the ramp up sets here. But okay. four years ago, I sit down. I write this fucking article uh, about warming up. And warming up the big lifts, and I, I term it ramp up sets. You know, I've heard it uh, somewhere before. I can't exactly remember exactly where I heard it, but it was basically like the most elementary bullshit I've ever written. I wrote four thousand words on how to go from a fucking forty-five pound bar to twenty-fives on the side to forty-fives on the side, then to one eighty-five, then to two twenty-five, and then when you get ready and you're all amped up, then you get to your work sets. And I sent that one in to T Nation, and I was like, man, this is bullshit. I can't even believe I wrote this. <laughs> and it gets published. It gets like 200,000 hits in a day. And people were like, they saw Jesus. They're like, holy shit, I've never thought about doing that. I've just been throwing 225 on and bench pressing. I'm like, whoa, you don't even know what you don't know. Um, so really, ramp up sets is not very complicated. Basically, there's two different ways to do ramp up sets, and it's another extended base warm up. Again, that's going to be a very, very commonality between uh, many of the methods that we use. Is we're trying to get as much pain-free training volume in as we possibly can. It will enhance neurological efficiency. It will improve skill sets and motor control, and it will keep joint stresses low. Then we get into our working sets. So basically, what this comes down to is we're going to prescribe a certain amount of sets that happen before you get to your top end weights. So if you're doing bench press and you have three sets of 10 at the top as your working sets, you usually use about 225 for 10 reps. You're gonna go from the bar to 135, maybe to 185, and then boom, hit 225. Um, we get a little bit more complicated with our performance athletes, the way that we use an inverse scheme with their ramp up sets. But for the general fitness population, man, this is a great way to maximize total volume while minimizing the amount of work volume that we need to actually get a training effect because we have so much of this pain-free training volume, I call it. So anytime that we can enhance a movement, we can have submaximal loads, but we can also get our reps in and tap into the mind-muscle connection again. You know, that's what I deem pain-free training volume. And that's a ton of what's in something like FHT. So like the total volume is huge, but the working volume is very moderate. And that's something that lines up very well for long-term success and longevity with people's training because they're getting better at the movement patterns. They're able to get more total amount of work in. They get the reps, so to say, but then they keep the mechanical stresses very low and they spare the joints in the process. Yeah, dude, I love it because usually people are on two ends of the spectrum. They're either training like a pussy or they are just not doing – or they're doing way too much and they're just under recovery. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something I stole from you when I started really getting into the online space. Now I have so many clients online. Two things I took from you was that to kind of save my ass was one, having some kind of ramp up scheme because at the end of the day, like some people just won't do it. And so you have yeah. to program in those warm up sets and then programming in my activation and primers and all those things as well, because I would create this like warm-up that was individualized it was perfect like i sent it to them as a separate document and they would just skip it because they're like i don't care about that i'm just gonna go to the gym yeah. so then i started really programming all these things in but um i love it too because like you said it's a pain-free way to get more volume in and as we know volume is one of the key drivers of hypertrophy um which is kind of what i want to segue into next 
Sorry for the brief interruption, guys, but I do want to give a quick shout out to my sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ is the fastest growing insurance company in the United States. And the reason for that is simple. They're the smartest. <laughs> but no, seriously, they really are because they are helping fitness enthusiasts across the country get better deals on their life insurance policy. And I don't know about you guys, but this is something that I've been really looking into and I'm so glad I hooked up with these guys and got a policy because I want to make sure that my family is safe and secure for the time being after I leave if something, God forbid, happens. But at the end of the day, it's something we need to think about. And it's really cool that Health IQ is going out of their way to bring science and data and gather information from you, the client, to give you a better policy, to save you money in the long run, and to help you get a better policy for your family just because you are investing your hard-earned time, money, and effort into being healthier. And at the end of the day, if anybody should get a better life insurance policy, it's you because you are serious about your health. You are serious about your nutrition, your training, so on and so forth. So whether you are a CrossFitter or a bodybuilder or a marathon runner or an athlete or just the average Joe who is going to the gym on a regular basis, you can save. So what I suggest you do is go get yourself a free quote. You can go to healthiq.com slash boom boom or you can just mention the promo code boom boom to any representative with Health IQ that you talk to. Another thing I really want you guys to go do is take the test. I said it on the last podcast. I took the test. I think I'm going to outdo any of your guys' score, and I want to hear from you guys. So anybody who can beat my score is going to get a free call with me where I can help strategize your fitness and your nutrition specifically, which is going to be a game changer in order to get you better results. So if you can beat me, go take the test. Go to healthiq.com slash boom boom. Shoot me an email at cody at boom and let me know your score. Now, without any further ado, Let's get back to the interview with John Russin. Volume, intensity, and frequency is the like hot topic for all. It's like DUP is this daily undulated periodization is this huge thing now. Everybody's squat bench and deadlifting, which I don't like to do three times a week. I don't think that's the smartest thing for your joints. But anyway, um, what is your perspective and like philosophy on that, and how do you implement that into your programs as far as those three pillars, and, and are they really that important? Yeah, I mean, we definitely monitor them. Uh, to say that they're the be-all and end-all is not necessarily correct. You know, kind of as we were speaking about before, there's a big difference between total volume, pain-free training volume, working set volume. There's a bunch of different types of volume. So, you know, in our courses when we go out, this is a big key thing that we try to match is volume needs to be based off of recovery, not on theoretical practices. Because the question that I always get is like, well, the research shows that you have to hit a muscle group or a movement pattern three times a week for optimal hypertrophy. So I I ask everybody, I'm like, who can bench here three times a week and by the third time that you bench that week, not just be driven to shit? And everyone's like, yeah, that's not practical. So there's a big difference between some of the hypertrophy science out there and then actually making it applicable to the people that are in front of you as your clients. So really, for the most part, I can see that most people can tolerate uh, two exposures a week to every movement pattern or muscle group. Uh, I was just uh, having a conversation with an editor about this. There's certain movement patterns, say, like single leg stance. You could, you could go single leg stance every day if you wanted. And there's other movement patterns like squatting, where you know really squatting more than two times a week is going to be very, very difficult. Obviously, you can use uh, different movement pattern variations in there. But for the most part, the big compound movements that have the most capacity to load, they're going to be a little bit lower on your total volume scheme. But then again, looking at tissues and regions versus just muscles. 
you can think about the back can tolerate far more volume than the chest can. You can think about the glutes and the hamstrings can tolerate exponential volume because of their role as tonic stabilizers as opposed to the quads. And things uh, like the calves, for instance, you could literally train the calves twice a day, every single day for months, if not years, and really always be moving forward because, again, they're posturally dependent muscles that are always uh, have some sort of tonicity in them because they keep you upright when you're in, uh, in two-leg stance. So, you know, frequency is important, but again, it has to go back to the person that you are training in front of you. So we have success training anywhere from three days a week for most people, usually three to week. Three days a week is like the bare minimum. And then when we program up to seven days a week in terms of the frequency, then that leads into the next thing, which is uh, the total amount of volume. So the total amount of volume has to be spread if you're doing seven days a week. Again, we're trying to get two exposures, maybe three exposures per pattern, per region. And then from there, the volume is taken down. So it really goes for us. Frequency is first and foremost. And then we go and look at the amount of um, training variability and then the total amount of volume. So um, it's a hard question to answer because there's so many dogmatic approaches out there. It's like, no, like you said, we need to bench, squat, and deadlift three days a week and that's the only way. Like I've read programs from like really good friends of mine where they're fucking benching five days a week and you're like, holy shit, man. Like (laughs) how does this possibly work? And the key thing is that everything works. I would be lying to say that every scheme could possibly work for somebody. But here's the key. Can you do it consistently? Can you gain longevity with your practice? And you can you fucking stay safe and joint-friendly approaches and stay pain-free? That's the key. If you can't do something consistently and it's not something that you're super psyched up to do, uh, it's not going to be something that's going to yield longevity. Yeah. No, I think adherence is the number one thing. And that applies to nutrition. I always tell people like – what's the best diet they ask me and i'm like well what can you adhere to for longer than 30 days because at the end of the day if you can't adhere to it it's pointless um going off of that like your splits kind of change a little bit and one thing at least that i've seen in the fhd programs is you don't typically follow a strict upper lower split but it's similar in, in upper mm-hmm. lower is obviously a two times a week frequency it, it varies the intensity and volume which i think is a pretty good approach and like you just said i mean Everybody who has really been a big fan of upper lower splits, their programs have worked for as long as I can remember. And West Side's big on that. Joe DeFranco's big on that. Yep. A lot of people who program well are big on that. Yours kind of usually go push-pull legs in a sense, and then you kind of have two, two or three more days where you can kind of choose what you need to focus on. What's your philosophy right. behind that? And, and I like it, by the way, because there's something about like and, – and I don't know if you ever did this, but most guys had a chest day, had a shoulder day, had an arm day at one point. <laughs> And as, as much as I know that's not the most optimal, there's something fun about just getting a pump in one muscle group and just sticking with it. And the push-pull leg split kind of allows you to do that in a sense. So I enjoy it. But what's your science behind that? So, so basically like you're talking like the FHT split as it's been known. So basically day one is going to be lower body emphasis. Day two is going to be push emphasis with the key indicator movement. It's going to be the bench press or some variation. And then day three consecutively is going to be a pull-based emphasis strength day, and that's going to have the deadlift as the key indicator movement. So the reason for putting those three strength days back to back to back is so we actually have a focus on one key indicator movement pattern for the day. Um, Many times I, I see power lifters and bodybuilders struggle to deadlift and squat on the same day. You just can't keep the same amount of intensity. Like, 
ego through the roof on the squat and then be like, holy fuck, I need to start all over again. We're, we're training deadlift, next movement pattern. And you're, like, you're trying to match it and you just can't do it. Um, so what we try to do is try to kind of like ride the wave, I try to call it. So you warm up down here and then the wave comes up and you put the primer in, you hit the peak of the wave. The peak of the wave is your key indicator lift. For us, we do squat, bench, and deadlift of some sort of variation. And then we ride the wave back down, neurologically speaking, and then we do the easier volume, you know, the, the more pump work, hypertrophy sets, metabolic stress, and then we clean things up with um, core dependent finishers, things like loaded carries or anti-rotational side bending, flexion extension based work at the core, or some metabolic capacity or energy systems development work. And we've had a great amount of success with that because people are able to conceptualize what the fucking goal is for one training day. If you, can, if you can't say like, what's your goal for your training day today in like one or two words, you don't have a goal, you're just throwing shit together. So day one goal, maximize the squat. Day two goal, maximize that bench press. Day three goal, maximize the deadlift. Everything else that gets you to that point that happens before the key indicator lifts is cool, and then it's after that, but you can't stay sky high at all times. And if we do that, again, we fry CNS, we fry the mechanical systems, then we go into that deep, dark, vicious circle of the painful training where we're having a lot of compensation patterns. So really that key block of day one, two, and three, having the big three indicator lifts being loaded very heavily, that literally leads us into the tail end of the week. So usually we have some sort of rest and recovery day. My programming never features like sit on your fucking ass and eat potato chips on the couch. Uh, we always do some sort of active recovery. Um, you know, we have like a five stage sequence that we use. It takes about 20 to 25 minutes to get through. And that's the bare minimum for our, all of our athletes on their off days. But with FHT, we look at doing an upper and lower body split with more of a hypertrophy based emphasis on the tail end of the week. This allows us to, again, neurologically uh, try to recover a bit more. We have some uh, CNS regeneration happening, but then we, again, get that two exposures to these movement patterns uh, per week. So that fits really nicely into our frequency of training these movement patterns. Uh, it boosts our volumes. It allows us to go into those pain-free training ratios. And we use very, very similar um, you know, upper body, lower body split at the tail end of the week that is just less dependent on external load. It's more dependent on the feel and getting total amounts of volume in. And then you know, the last day of the week is again, one of those uh, recovery-based days. So essentially the FHT is based off of a five training session week. And then we have energy systems development work that happen uh, with recovery days in those other two days. I love it, man. It's so important to actually stick to the program because there's, as you can tell, like somebody could buy the FHD program and they read it and they're like, oh, okay, like it's it's written out for me. But there's so much thought that goes behind it, and that's what people don't understand about program design is there's a lot of work on the back end. Um, and I love that because I'm someone that I've tested everything, and I, I felt horrible on DUP because, at, like like you said, I, I work up to my squat, I squat heavy, and then I look at my paper and it's like, all right, now you got a bench. And I'm like, fuck, dude. Like, I'm gassed. Yeah, it's tough. Um, and then you get to a point where even if it's accessory work, right? Like, let's say I'm squatting today and Romanian deadlift is my, my accessory work, but I'm starting to Romanian deadlift pretty heavy. Now it's the same exact concept, right? So yeah. I love the way you're going about this. One thing I would like you to touch on is how important it actually is to follow a program. There's a lot of people who program hop um and i think variety is good but how do you balance the the there's 
kind of like that RPE variety, right? Like you come in, you know you have a horizontal row, and maybe you can switch that up a little bit because it's accessory work. But with the compounds, with the reps and sets and volumes, how important is it to stick with a program for three, four, or five weeks long? I mean, it's really important. And when you break it down, it's all about training movement patterns as opposed to force feeding specific exercises. So if you can look at things like that, all of a sudden you take any type of training program, whether it be FHT or 531, whatever it is, and if you can break it down based off the movement pattern as opposed to the specific exercise, you can ideally prescribe yourselves the perfect movement pattern that you can maximize the trainability while minimizing the affected joint stress. That's number one. Number two is you can conceptualize the entire program as essentially a blueprint for you. So when we talk about a blueprint, really you can classify movements into patterns and then isolated base movements. So you have the squat, the hinge, the lunge, push, pull, and carry. Then you look at direct shoulder work, direct glute work, direct calf work. You have all the little stuff that goes in there. But if you can properly figure out which movement patterns that you should be using, so if you're going into 531 and it's deadlift day, like holy fuck, like deadlifting off the floor with a barbell really fucks my back. <laughs> Let's not just like, it's important to stay on a program, but it's important to customize the program to you. Because uh, you and I would be lying to say if uh, even single sale programs that do extremely well like FHT, they're not built for everyone. And it's not something that if you 100% adhere to, you're going to have success. There is coaching that has to happen with it. There is customization that has to happen with it. And again, even a single sale program, there's a lot of back and forth that happens in order to optimize it. But again, the simplest thing is trying to take the hardest movement pattern variation that you can do well, do that so you can maximize trainability. And guess what? If you have some sort of limiting factor, it's not good enough just to skip barbell bench press or skip barbell deadlift. You need to be adding in some sort of remediation, getting after the why you can't do that. And that happens in the six-phase warm-up. Perfect, perfect. So let's talk exercise selection. I want to dive into this because FHT is, I mean – functional obviously <laughs> you choose a lot of free weights but in the new muscle prescription there is a little bit of machine work what and, and mm -hmm. this is like bodybuilders are notorious for wanting to use cables and machines because of the the time under tension and resistance curve what is your like uh in my from my mind i'm assuming the dumbbells the barbells the kettlebells these things are going to just be more joint friendly because it is built to our mechanics because it's our mechanics doing the work how does that feed into your programming and what do you have as a suggestion for the listeners when it comes to programming those things in? Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to prioritize uh, body weight or free weights over machine work. But again, there's times and places for everything. And really, to be absolutely honest with you, the reason that we use the barbell, dumbbells, the bench, a squat rack and fucking bands and FHT is because every single person that's training has those at their disposal. It's not necessarily about the tools. It's about the methods that show you how to use the tools correctly. So when you break it down like that, you could be using fucking anything. You could be using a chest press machine. You could be using barbell bench press, dumbbell bench press. You could be doing kettlebell floor press for uh, all intents and purposes. But if the mindset is right on why you're doing what you're doing, the tool is you know, secondary to actually the method of why we're doing what we're doing. But with, uh, I like a well-rounded approach. So a little bit of everything, me personally, um, I like to be able to, you know, me being me very fucking anal about programming. I like to see progressions on weights, no matter what it is. So I am more opt to use uh, cables, 
um, more opt to use uh, barbells and dumbbells and kettlebells as opposed to uh, bands for some for an example. You know, if I'm doing rows, uh, I'd rather use the low cable row machine so I could see the 120, 140, 160, whatever, as opposed to using a band. But again, movement patterns are movement patterns, um, but there's really a time and place for everything. And in terms of the muscle prescription where you, uh, where you mentioned that we're using machines and we're using cables and stuff like that, you need variation because that has a higher split in terms of the body, um, the body part splits. So we split away from the actual functionality and we kind of gave an old school bodybuilding split and you just need variety in there. You know, you can't be trained in the same movement patterns over and over again. And really the body thrives from a hypertrophy standpoint with novel stimulus. So anytime that you can add novel stimulus into your system, even if it's through the same movement patterns, the slight variation is really going to help for your neurological efficiency, but also challenging uh, muscle fiber types in order to actually activate and fatigue them. So um, slight variations are absolutely pivotal. Uh, people hear variation. They think they're going to go from marathon running to uh, 531. Like that's not variation. <laughs> slight variation is like, hey, I'm barbell bench pressing on Monday, and then I'm barbell bench pressing again on Thursday. I'm going to alter my grip half an inch that slight variation because that's going to totally change uh, the way that the cortical mapping works in your brain to actually respond back down to your tissues. So slight variations are huge. You don't have to reinvent the wheel on this stuff. And again, if you can look at blueprints, if you can look at movement pattern development, um, the world's uh, like the sky's the limit in terms of the, the slight variations that you guys can use in order to build muscle and keep resiliency with the training programs. So does that include angles as well? Because I know there was a big period of time where people would be like, again, chest day, you do flat bench, incline bench, decline bench, then you do flat fly, decline five, incline, yeah. and you're just going off like every angle. Is there any merit to that? Because after that, it, just like everything else in the fitness world, everything kind of has its like phases and cycles through time. Then there was this period of time where everybody was obviously like, all you have to do is bench. There's nothing else. It's the chest is the chest and it'll hit it. Like, how do you apply those things? And how do you continually apply variation as you become an advanced lifter? Yeah. So, I mean, angle variation is really, really important. Um, I like to call it meathead math. Like Dave Tate and I were talking about this. It's like meatheads like to go at fucking right angles. So it's like, all right, we do horizontal press or we fucking press overhead all in the same angle. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the forward thinking meathead, they go, well, what if we cut the fucking right angle in half? Then we go 45 degrees and we can bench press at a, <laughs> an incline <laughs> angle. But it's not only about 45 degrees or 90 degrees or a flat bench. There's many different angles. So we go anywhere from a 20 degree decline to flat to 20 degree incline to high angle rows. Like all the different intermediary angles, it's not that they're inherently better than the flat or the vertical presses or pulls. It's that they're novel stimulus against your system. They clean up weak links because all of a sudden those postural stabilizers have to work at different angles. Um, different portions or different aspects of the musculature have to activate differently. Um, Slight variations are huge, and in terms of optimizing shoulder position or hip position with squatting, bench pressing, deadlifting, uh, finding the, the variation that works for you in terms of the angulation of your joints but also on your setups, kind of staying around there and using slight variations to the left or to the right and not trying to go from like a west side dynamic box squat to like a super narrow front squat with your heels elevated. Like your hips are your hips. You cannot – you cannot revolutionize the way that your bony anatomy is structured. 
But if you can find a way to find where you're supposed to be, you can kind of move left or right of all those different angles in terms of your shoulder structure, your hip structure, your limb lengths, things along those lines. Right. So I think it's, it's just it's always an it depends answer, but obviously there's many approaches to it. Um, in regards of recovery, that's something else I want to touch on. I, I, I want to say it was you, but if I'm wrong, my bad. But a while back, I thought I heard you say something where – I mean, there's the big argument of doing cardio post-workout, right? You don't want to do low-intensity cardio because you're going to kill your gains, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like I heard you somewhere say that it actually enhances recovery, which in their turn can actually enhance muscle growth. Um, in, in FHT, you actually will program like it's optional, mm-hmm. obviously, but sometimes some cardio at the end, even if it's just walking for 20 minutes. Why yeah. is that and, and does that actually enhance recovery post-workout? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So if I had the perfect case scenario, I would have recovery-based sessions that would happen four to six hours after the actual strength training session. So you finish your lift at 9 a.m., you know, by the afternoon, you go in for a secondary recovery session that would be inclusive of something called global foam rolling techniques, Uh, again, biphasic stretching, corrective movements, and then low-intensity, low-impact steady-state cardio, or even some, um, some light energy systems work like within um, recovery zone, zone one heart rate. And that is something that is hugely beneficial for recovery. Again, recovery is not a passive process. It doesn't mean that you're recovering because you did nothing that day. Recovery happens from um, like a two-pronged system. It has to happen neurologically. It has to happen mechanically. We can enhance both of those things with active modalities. So, yeah, whether you tack it on after your session, uh, again, people like us, though, like we get crazy. It's like you go on and you start walking on the treadmill. You're like, all right, I'm recovering after my bench press day. All of a sudden you see some fucking guy like sprinting on the treadmill. You're like, fuck, I need to work harder. I need to work harder. So it's a slippery slope for people, especially like the type A personalities, man. So if you can uh, define what you need to be doing and actually do it. You know, tacking on a little bit of a recovery-based cardio, getting in some parasympathetic breathing after your sessions is really advantageous. You can do it as a secondary session later on that day. And as a bare minimum, you should be doing active-based recovery, uh, incorporating low-intensity, low-impact, steady-state cardio on your off days. So important, man, because everybody is in the high-intensity world now, and it's just – there's a time and place for everything, but – for some reason, people forget that there's also a time and place for low intensity as well, right? And I think that's really important. Um, one thing I got to ask you before we sign off is what you're doing with Dave Tate. I saw a dope promo <laughs> video. That shit looked epic, and I was super pumped to see that. Like, kind of break that down for me because I'm super interested. Well, everyone's going to be able to see everything because uh, I went into Elite FTS a couple weeks ago, and we in took Dave as a client of mine for 2018. So uh, without like giving too much out, I spent 16 hours on an initial evaluation and consult with Dave. We looked at everything that he was doing. I talked to his doctors. I talked to his training partners. I talked to his fucking wife. I talked to everybody, and we broke down everything before I got there. 16 hours later, we had a plan to move him forward. Um, it's all on video. It's all going to come out on a step-by-step documentary and on Elite FTS. But this is just the first step. Um, I took over his programming, took over all aspects of his human performance, and we're going to rebuild this fucking guy, man. Um, He knows he's in need. Uh, Everyone knows that he's in need. And, you know, he's willing right now to go in and make some changes. And I'd be lying to say if it's not very, very similar structure to some of the key tenants that we have in FHT. 
So people are all asking me questions about what his program is going to look like. You guys are all going to see it, and you're going to go, holy shit, <laughs> we've seen this before. Yeah. Because truly I think that uh, for a vast majority of the demographics that are active population out there, um, there is an ideal system for gaining longevity while getting results, while being excited about your training, while progressing your weights. And it is in this style of training. Um, this is something that you know might not get the sexiest results after three weeks, but after three months, you're going to revolutionize the way that you feel, and then the sky's the limit there on your performance, really for forever. Well, and at the end of the day, like if, if you're fucked up from a movement, pain, joint, anything perspective, it didn't happen in 30 days, and it's not going to get fixed <laughs> in 30 days. And someone like him, I mean, shit, he's been powerlifting for I don't know how long, and. So I'm assuming he's in some pain, and it's going to be really cool to see. I'm excited for that. It's cool because uh, about 11, 12 years ago, John Berardi rebuilt Dave for the first time. Uh, about seven years that. ago, John, John Meadows rebuilt Dave again. So this is like round three. Uh, <laughs> round three of rebuilding process. But another thing about this project is we're not doing fucking physical therapy on him. We're not putting dry needles in his back and shit. This is 100% training. Training optimization. Training, again, is the best form of rehab. So when you can look at it like that, I think people's eyes are going to be wide fucking open on why they're doing all this crazy shit in the fluff rehab aspect of the industry when in all actuality it's about optimizing training. And that's the thing that actually gains longevity with whatever your physical endeavors are. Dude, I love it. That's going to be a really, really cool project. And it's funny because I remember reading the both the rebuilding Dave Tate articles and projects actually. I mean the nutrition one and then I believe John Meadows yeah. had a whole bodybuilding thing. He got jacked with it too. So <laughs> yeah. this is going to yeah. be a really, really cool perspective. And I think it's going to be really applicable to a lot of people. So I'm excited to watch. Um, the last thing I have for you and I always ask a personality question at the end of these uh, calls is – here we go. You're on a flight to Japan. So you got, I don't know how long it is from where you're at, probably at least 10 hours, but it's a long flight. You're in the middle seat and you got two empty seats next to you. You can have anybody on that flight to talk to, dead or alive, but they cannot be friends or family. Who's sitting next to you? Man, uh, it's a tough one. I, I would have to go... I would have to go with – it sounds so retarded, but I would have to go with uh, Arnold just because of the the amount of influence that he's had in so many different aspects of his life. That was my answer but, too. But <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not like I'm like a huge Arnold guy, but it's just like from so a, wealth, a wealth of knowledge standpoint, unbelievable. Yeah. This is a hard question for me to answer because I'm in a really, uh, really opportune place in my career where a lot of these people, you know, um, people that I've looked up to for 20 years now, they're people that I'm talking to on a daily basis. And it's, um, I'm very, very fortunate to have those kind of opportunities. So I'm thinking like, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said guys like Dave Tate. Um, <laughs> and guess what? He's a fucking client right now. Um, so very cool to think about that thing. One more person. Uh, I don't know. I would say like a businessman, uh, somebody who is like really ahead of the times, like an Elon Musk or somebody like that, like a visionary kind of guy. Uh, though I don't pretend to be like this savvy businessman, like, you know, I do own four businesses. So that's something that, again, is evolutionizing my uh, my kind of being in this world. So, you know, yes, I'm a coach. I'm in the fitness space. But Again, we're transferring into some multiple endeavors this year specifically, and that's something that 
you know, I definitely like to look at from a vision standpoint because I'm not the best in terms of like knowing the books or anything like that, but I am pretty good in terms of vision and where I see things going. So to look at somebody, you know, an influence like that would be huge. Yeah. And he's, I mean, shit, he's like going to the moon and random shit like that every <laughs> other day. So great answer, yeah, man. Dude, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Where can everybody find you? I know you just dropped a new program. You got um, a, a new membership thing coming out. Where can everybody find all of your stuff? Over on the website, drjohnrussin.com, D-R-J-O-H-N-R-U-S-I-N.com. If you guys want to check out the FHT, go drjohnrussin.com forward slash FHT. There's a ton of info over there. Uh, if you want to get as jacked as Cody, you know, that's the program for you. But, uh, yeah, that's our hub, man. Uh, everything's over there. Yeah, and I highly recommend it. Obviously, I was one of the original guys doing it. I'm still doing it to this you day. You were. I actually have a – dude, I'm not taking training clients right now, only nutrition clients just because I got my roster full. And that's exactly where I send people because I have a handful <laughs> of people running FHT and it makes things a lot easier because I know they're doing a smart yeah. program. So I highly I recommend that. it. And uh, once again, dude, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, man. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Dr. John Russin. I know I did. I hope you guys took a ton of notes. You might have to go back and listen to it one more time. Take more notes and critique your training program. The guy is a beast. He is super intelligent, and I was super pumped to have him on the show. Now, one thing I do want to say before I let you guys go is if you can leave me a five-star rating and review, I would really appreciate it. It helps me climb up the charts on iTunes to beat those other fitness podcasts. But on top of that, it helps me grow. And the more I grow, the better guests I can get on and the more free content I can deliver for you personally. And for those of you who have already left a review, thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate it. It means the world to me and it does change a lot for me in this podcasting game. Um, one quick note as well is I want to give the Boom Boom Performance Podcast forum on Facebook a shout out. I love the community. It's filled with a lot of people who are super enthusiastic about just fitness in general who who are seeking more information. And it's a really cool place where we can all talk, we can all share ideas, and I can actually critique and help and give feedback back to those individuals who are in there investing their time to get better results. So if you want to be a part of that forum, it is going to be open for free for only a limited time. It is getting to a point where I'm going to close it and there's going to be a price behind it. So if you want to jump in the forum, um, now is the time. There is a link in the description below. Um, Once you add yourself in, I will review and accept you if you are worthy of the group. Um, For now, everybody is worthy. So jump in there before the price jumps on. I will talk to you guys next time. Thank you again for tuning in.